There's nothing like a good old boozer. Greater Manchester is a treasure chest full of them. Beautiful, historic buildings, rugged carpets, crackling fireplaces, pork scratchings and the smell of ale. And the people, right? It's about the people. Some of them occupying the same seat at the same leather booth for decades, watching and listening, hearing the tales of the people who pass through, some coming to drown their sorrows, others to toast their successes. You can't help but wonder, if only these walls could speak, the stories they would tell. Although, of course, the walls don't need to speak, not really, because the people can. This is the Manchester Weekly from The Mill. I'm Daryl Morris, and Yoshi Herman is the creator and editor of The Mill, Greater Manchester's new quality newspaper, delivered by email. Yoshi, hi. Hi. We've got a really good episode, I think. Two of our reporters going out, meeting people, sort of bringing in slightly quirky, unusual stories from across uh, Greater Manchester. Looking forward to it. Danny went to visit a theatre workshop that you guys visited a year ago, right? And sort of see how they're coping, catch up. Yeah, one of the first members-only stories we did on the mill was this visit to Ashton where we went to this workshop and it was kind of a really sad situation because it was slightly grinding to a halt. You know, it was this time last year, the lockdowns meant that theatres had cancelled all their pantos and it was looking really desperate there. And then, you know, we sent Danny back this week and obviously it was a completely different picture and it was a really lovely story. Okay, we'll speak to Danny about that shortly. In the meantime, let's get you briefed on everything you need to know. Here's what's happening in Greater Manchester. Yoshi, we'll start with uh, Glasgow, actually, because the eyes of the world have been on Scotland. COP26 taking place up there. The Prime Minister, presidents, leaders from across the world, and Andy Burnham have descended on Glasgow. Why was he there? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that for Andy Burnham, it's a chance to sort of bend the national agenda around green issues to the sort of local agenda in GM. And the big thing that he wants, I think we've talked about it before, is greater funding from central government so that fares in our sort of remade public transport system can be lower. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. If you don't get a subsidy from government, you can't charge the kind of London-style fares, the £1.50 hop-on, hop-off type buses. And he's just banging this drum every week now. I mean, he, you know, Andy Burnham has been talking about bus fares ever since he was the MP, you know, out, out in Wigan and Lee. So he really cares about this. He knows that public transport is a vogue issue at the moment because of things like COP, because of all the, all the green focus, and, and he's really pushing it. I mean, he told someone an interview um, at the convention that this is a chance to re-industrialise the North as well. So there's a sort of a bit of a uh, industrial agenda going on there. But I think Andy Burnham will take any chance to talk about public transport, making it cheaper and making it better, and this is a good one for him. Mm. OK, we'll keep an eye on that as Andy Burnham returns from Glasgow. Also, a moment of real concern for parents and school pupils in Withenshaw this week, Yoshi. A school was put on lockdown because of a suspected gunman, is that right? Yeah, this is an academy in Withenshaw called Manchester Health Academy. And effectively what happened here is a call came in from someone who alleged that there was a gunman operating outside the school. So the police obviously took it incredibly seriously. It's an enormous school. You're talking about a thousand pupils essentially being locked in their classrooms. The blinds were taken down. There was an enormous amount of panic, um, unease. I think it was a really scary experience. It turned out you know, within a few hours to be a hoax. 
um, and and you know police were on site, armed police. There was a helicopter overhead, so pretty terrifying incident. It kind of almost looked like a sort of American style story when you saw it on the um, on the MEN website. Um, fortunately, it didn't turn out that way, mm, which is a relief all round mm. for sure. Quick check on COVID numbers as well, Yoshi. Before we move on, where are we at? Yeah, it's a fairly boring picture, which is good. I mean, Greater Manchester's case rate is falling. Um, Greater Manchester's case rate is actually a bit lower than England's one, which is also falling. Um, So at the moment, there isn't a huge amount to update on. We're not getting the same sort of regularity of of numbers about hospitalisations and vaccinations at the moment, but... There's no sort of major cause for concern with those either. So I think um, eyes will be a little bit more on as the winter comes in, as the weather gets colder, does that change? Okay, and that is a story that we will be keeping across. To subscribe, to get the latest, manchestermill.co.uk. You know a proper pub when you're in one, don't you? The smell of the ale, the sticky counter, the rugged carpets, the reasonably priced pints and the not overwhelming selection of crisps and nuts. But it's the people, really, isn't it? The characters and the stories that they have to tell. Nestled in amongst the wine bars and the indie art venues of the Northern Quarter are a splattering of pubs. Actual pubs, proper pubs, with affordable pints and a small band of dedicated locals. Pubs that have resisted the tide of gastrification in the Northern Quarter. The Mills' Jack Dulhanty described it as a cultural fabric rewoven. With these pubs, the threads of the old guard standing out in stubborn, prideful contrast. Well, Jack went to explore some of these pubs in the Northern Quarter. Jack, hi. Hello, you're right. This might be a stupid question. Uh, why did you want to go to the pub, Jack? Um... <laughs> Oh, yeah, I've been lobbying for the pub correspondent job for a while. No, um, Yoshi, my editor, had walked past the Unicorn in the Northern Quarter, which is on Church Street, which is quite an old pub. I think that shows up on, in like a pub guide for 1997 or something. So it's pretty classy or classic. He strode past it and he looked through the window and just saw what was a really old school boozer, I suppose you could term it. And like a lot of the stories that we do, I think we often look at places like Tower Blocks, pubs, wherever, and it's tinged with like a little bit of anthropology you know it's kind of like okay who are the people in that place that I would never normally go in and then I was lucky enough to be asked to just go and drift around pubs for a few days and see who I stumbled across and try and have a chat with them and you stumbled across Thomas Thomas tell me about Thomas Thomas was day one like (laughs) I went the Millstone so the Millstone is a pub on Thomas Street in the Northern Quarter and it's like pretty old pub it's been there since like the 1800s or at least the building has been and I thought I'd go there straight away because again it's that kind of thing I walk past it a lot you'll see someone like hanging out the window singing karaoke or something and you'll be like who would go in there so I went in and it was about 12pm on a Tuesday so I mean like I was looking for pretty hardcore regulars at this point and I was sat like at the end of the bar and I just heard a few people doing that usual like punt uh, pageantry like having conversations that are so loud everyone has to hear the conversation and it's, they're just talking nonsense and he was talking about being in Monaco and stealing Rolexes and selling them off and all this sort of thing and I was like this is just classic like pub liar um, and then well I, was, I spoke to a few people but it was kind of dead so I was like right I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go and then I was literally at the door when his friend John points at me and goes like oh he really looks like George Groves the boxer, which I don't, for anyone listening. And and I was like, 
like, okay. And then he's like, doesn't he look like George Groves? Hey, doesn't he look like George Groves? And everyone's looking at me seeing, trying to see if I look like George Groves. And then I just took it as a kind of prompt to sit down and start chatting. And Thomas was like the leader of this pack. He was like the one who wanted to talk the most. He was the first to answer questions, interrupting everyone to tell me that this is the last of the old school pubs. This is like the last of the old school boozers. It, it, right, it is, yeah, he's right, you know. You know right, what, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. You've got this and you've got another one called the Sitter. Yeah, the city, These yeah. are the last of the old school yeah, boozers, yeah, yeah. am I right, John? Sure, yeah, he's right. He's and right. it's what it is yeah. now. This I'm place will become fucking Starbucks Central. And then from there, it was just a sort of chain of finding more people like him. And they they kind of frequent a couple of pubs, right? There's sort of a handful of them in the northern quarter that they do the rounds of that have that does that do seem to have sort of resisted that tide yeah. of of gastrification, if you can call it that. Yeah, I mean, these pubs have been some of them have been there hundreds of years. So places like the City Hotel, and that's a whole the oldest in um, in Manchester. So that's been there for like literally hundreds of years. So these places have survived like the Blitz. So I'm pretty sure they'll survive gentrification quite easily I think it does engender in the customers a kind of like like you said in the intro there a stubbornness and a pridefulness it's, it's not just that we like this it's we like this and it just so happens to be way better than everywhere else no matter what anyone tells us and that's what I found quite interesting mm. and they, they, they do love where they live, they love going between these pubs mm. and, and they're, they're a community right? Yeah, I think in many ways, like that cluster of pubs that we talk about in the piece, they do kind of serve like a group who otherwise would not be able to drink in Manchester City Centre anymore. And I think that's quite important in a way. Because when you when you try and talk to them about like a wine bar or a cocktail bar and they just think, no, that's not... It's not that it's not who they are or they wouldn't enjoy it. It's more that like the pubs that they go in are what they know... And they know that they can turn up there and just be completely relaxed. They can sit next to someone they don't know and by the end of the night know everything about them. And that was the main thing that I really drew from it was like the intimacy and the sociability of these places. Because obviously I was going in them and sitting next to people I didn't know and striking up conversation and it was so easy. And I think, like, when I normally go out, I wouldn't dream of sitting next to someone in a cocktail bar and being like, hi, mm. you just don't do it. Mm. So I thought that was interesting. Mm. It's also really cheap. Yes, it is, which is brilliant. <laughs> um, when I was speaking to the landlord of the Millstone Jed, he did touch on that. He was like, keep the beer good, keep it cheap. And I, I think, again, that sociability aspect links into it being accessible. You can't be a regular somewhere that you can't sustainably afford to be a regular at. And I think that's what these pubs offer as well. So, like, for example, the city, you can get a pint of Boddington's for £2.50, which blew my mind. Mm. But you also can't get a half pint, you have to get a pint, so... You asked for half a pint. I asked for half a pint and I got a pint. <laughs> so, uh, but it was still £2.50. I thought they were charging me the wrong price, but that was the price for a pint, so... Um, and yeah, that that's part of the thing. It makes it accessible for more people, I suppose. And so you met Jed. Uh, you mentioned him. Yes. Landlord of the Millstone. What was yes. he like? How did you find Jed? Super old school. Well, I found him just by like hearing about him in the pub because obviously I was asking staff who owns the place, who's the landlord, who can I talk to? And they were like, yeah, uh, Jed's the landlord. He drops by sometimes. And then I called and I was told various things over the phone about when he would be there, when he wouldn't be there. And he's, the short answer is he's always there anyway. So the first time I met him was just on a Friday when I was in there on one of my extensive research missions. <laughs> and he just sort of does the rounds of the pub and shakes everyone's hands, says hello to everyone, 
kisses people on the cheek, says hello, says enjoy my pub, and he turns up to me and shakes my hand, and I'm like, we spoke on the phone like an hour ago, you said you weren't <laughs> going to be here. And he was like, oh, you made my day to see you, and he's very kind, and he's very hands-on. But by the time that we came to be interviewed, I'd been there a few times, and I think he was just kind of sick of the sight of me, to be honest. But no, he's a really old-school guy. He's owned loads of pubs, or ran loads of pubs in like Salford and Manchester, and he has this very tight formula of just making them exclusively places or places where there's a lot of musical acts, lots of karaoke nights that draw a lot of people in. That was kind of his business model, essentially. Mm. But no, he was very interesting. How did you find it as a somebody who perhaps you say by your own ambition wouldn't necessarily drink at those kind of places? Mm. They're not the sort of places that you would ordinarily go to. How did you find it sort of stepping into that world? There was a lot of like pacing past the entrance just kind of like okay, I'm, I'm going to go in I'm going to go in this is this is the time that I'll go in and then like you you realise that it's just completely ridiculous to think that way like you literally you get in there and people just don't care that you've walked in very different to like again these higher end places where you might feel as though there's a bit more onus on how you look or the way that you act or something like that like these places you can in the words of Thomas, you can just walk in if you wanted with a mankini on and no one would care. Like, you can just come in, sit down, order a drink and no one's going to bother you unless you want to be bothered. And I think that's quite a special thing to preserve. And it's nice to be nice, you know what I mean? You come in here, you get looked after. You can walk in here without a pot, without a pot to piss in, without a pound coin in your pocket. If you're with the right people, you get looked after. How did they find you? I think you searched your wallet at one point. <laughs> yeah, they thought I was police. There was always someone thinking I was a policeman, and I was like, "That's it just why would I be here?" I think it's the microphone because I use like, I use like a microphone for um, interviews and stuff. So as soon as you see the microphone, you're like, "You're not police, are you?" And I'm just like, "No, I'm not." But why would a policeman want to ask why you're in a pub? <laughs> like, it's not illegal. Uh, but no, yeah, I had my wallet searched. I had lots of people thinking I was police for whatever reason, but for the most part, people were really nice. They're those sort of people who clock you and they just kind of decide there and then whether they're going to want to talk to you. Mm. And within a few minutes, you'll know whether or not they do. Because they'll normally be like, leave me alone. Or they'll be like, you seem like a nice guy, sit down. And then you'll be able to have a chat. Salt of the Earth people in a setting that has been preserved for them, but also by them. Yeah, that's probably quite true. Does it last? I hope so. I mean, it's lasted so far. But... They. that's part of what's so interesting I think Northern Quarter really is a place at odds with itself at this point and I think that's probably applicable bro- more broadly in Manchester like we've got a lot of development and a lot of still quite old places and people who want to stick around in the places where they were, they were born in look at Ancoats and places like that but no like you say salt of the earth people hope they stick around mm. there's a brilliant uh, quote at the end of your article from John who you met amongst some of the crowd who said four pubs for the rest of my life Thomas you say his pint's nearly leaping out of his glass as he raises it I'll drink to that John classic and congratulations on getting an assignment in a pub Jack I hope there will be many more well done my friend <laughs> thank you Jack thank you I went to the theatre for the first time a few weeks ago. It was uh, still a bit different to keep people safe, obviously, but I soaked up every second. The old cramped seats, the acoustics, the artists expressing themselves, the craft of the sets in the background, the things that you notice when suddenly you stop taking it all for granted. Alec Graham never took it for granted. This is his bread and butter. In March 2020, when productions ground to a halt and theatres closed their doors, an eerie quiet fell over the workstations at Splinter Scenery, the set-making business that Alec runs in Ashton. 
A year ago, the Mills' Danny Cole visited Alec and the Splinter team, and it's fair to say that the outlook was bleak. Now, a year on, Danny has returned and found, as she described it, the air filled with the smell of dry sawdust and the clatter of tools. Danny, hi. Hello, how are you doing? Good. You went to visit in autumn 2020. Take us back there. What did you find? Um, so I actually went with my editor Yoshi. When we went there, it was just very quiet, very eerie. I think we were still sort of, you know, in the throes of lockdown or, you know, it was a very strange atmosphere. So we, we went in and Alec welcomed us in and we sat down and have a chat with him. And then he took us around his workshop and it was very sort of muted, very sort of quite everyone was quietly industrious you know there weren't very many workers in and he was telling us that he'd actually had to start making some layoffs and most of his staff were actually furloughed so when we went to visit there were only a few people inside the workshop and the atmosphere was quite not tense but it was quite quite somber Mm. and they are i guess they were the ultimate knock-on effect right productions close and therefore nobody needs sets to be made what do they do tell tell me about splinter and who they are and what they make Sure. So Splinter was founded, I think, almost 23 years ago. So Alec um, actually founded the company. Um, He trained at the Oldham Coliseum. So he trained under some master carpenters. And they are the people who make the sets of the shows you like to go and see. So I know during lockdown, you know, much of the emphasis was, you know, the theatres closing and actors not being able to perform. But, you know, when you go and you see a show and you're taken inside this, you know, really immersive world, Splinter are the people who make the sets. So I think one of the more sort of high profile shows that you might have heard of is The Play That Goes Wrong. So I haven't seen it myself, but, you know, he's saying it it takes a real battering because, you know, things get kind of thrown around. So he he makes the set. So when you go and sit in a theatre... You know, everything you see behind the actors performing, you know, they they make those sorts of things. Mm. And then, of course, that all shut down and they had to pivot, right, over the last 12 months or so. How did they fill the gaps? Yeah, so all their usual regular clients... um, obviously the pantos stopped and the show stopped running so he was saying they had to kind of diversify their business so throughout the winter they had a few small commissions so i think the liverpool everyman theater you know had a few bits going on so they were able to make a few sets for them but i think one of the big drivers of sort of their business was pub gardens so at one point he was saying everyone wanted to kind of regain that sense of normality so pubs you know you're not allowed to sit inside so pubs were saying oh let's build some covers you know so people can sit outside so that was one of their kind of main sources of income during that time Um, and those little sort of huts you know when you go to a pub and it's sort of a Christmas market and you've got like a little wooden Scandinavian hut they made some of those as well because people were allowed to visit in sort of groups of six so Mm. that was what they were kind of getting up to during the winter. But presumably for a company that's quite big and is a big and important part of the local economy, it was dry, right, in comparison to what it normally is. Fast forward 12 months, Danny, you went back to Splinter, went back to Ashton. What did you find this time? Um, well, I found Alec hadn't changed very much. He, he did look a few years older, um, but he said he was feeling like he was 21 years old again, which was very good. Very busy. Lots and lots of people inside the workshop. Lots of noises. Um, I visited 
about 9.30 in the morning. So most at that point, you know, most people are sort of getting into work and sort of settling in. Um, when I got there, you know, people were just all at it, you know, cutting, sawing, painting, welding. So yeah, very, very busy. And about, I think, I think maybe 10 to 15 people were, were at work already. So um, a big contrast from when we last visited. Wow. And I, well, there was a comment on one of your articles, I think, Danny, from somebody who is a neighbouring business who said, I, I read this article a year ago. I was really hoping that this company would come through unscathed and clearly they have how does Alec feel about the prospects he's very positive I think maybe one of the things that I'd like to emphasize you know in the article when we last visited him it was it was a really heavy atmosphere you know this was a company that he'd he'd built from the ground and he was face you know he was kind of staring it in the face at the fact that you know it might all disappear and he was just you know it was a really tense sort of you know, somber atmosphere, but he he's feeling really positive. Um, his estimated turnover, he's looking at sort of over a million, and he's you know so he's really really happy about that. In a good year, when you know things are kind of going well, they can do up to fifty to sixty jobs. And when I visited him, he'd already done you know Splinter Scenery had already done fifty jobs, so looking really healthy, really optimistic. Wow, great! And you met some of the workers as well. Tell me about Tim. Ah, Tim. So Tim was there during our first visit, a real character. He was in the workshop kind of getting on with things. He had a cigarette sticking out of his mouth and a Wallace and Gromit sort of set of overalls. And I said, oh, Tim, can I take your photograph? And he said, oh, yes, you can, but don't expect me to stop working. And then when when we saw him again this time around, he recognised me and said, oh, how are you doing, Tim? And he said, oh, I've been really busy. And I said, Tim, can I take your photograph? And he's like, yeah, well, don't expect me to, you know, stop working. So, yeah, it was real character and this is we sort of talked about this last week a little bit Danny with these new cotton these new old industries that are in Manchester this is something that you don't hear a lot about chugging away in the background a big part of the economy and a big industry in Manchester that is starting to churn back into life Mm, yeah isn't it yeah exactly special special place yeah Danny thank you thanks Okay, Yoshi, take us into the mill newsroom, my friend. What's happening this week? What are you working on? It's been a very exciting week. I always say it's an exciting week, <laughs> but this week we've announced to our members that we're doing a one-off print edition of the mill. So we are going revealed to first on this podcast. Revealed first way. on this podcast. It was leaked <laughs> on this podcast. It's now been officially revealed to our members. And actually, we've had an amazing reaction. Dozens and dozens of our members have offered to help us distribute copies. You know, I'll take some around Charlton. I'll take some around Oldham. I'll put some in my local theatre in my local cafe. So. That's been really amazing. We're going to print 10,000 of copies, um, and that's going to happen in December. So all hands on deck for that. And we've got a really interesting piece coming up about Chemnitz, which is a city in the former German Democratic Republic, the former GDR, the the East German um, segment of the country. And Chemnitz is actually Manchester's twin city in Germany. And it's, you know, Again, it's another industrial city. There are sort of links between the kinds of industries we had and the kind of industries they had. But what Chemnitz has become really well known for in the past few years is the far right. It's become a bit of a breeding ground for um, anti-immigrant feeling in Germany. And our reporter, Sophie Atkinson, who used to live in Berlin and who was on a trip in Germany a couple of months ago, she actually went to Chemnitz and did some on-the-ground reporting for us. So we've kind of got this interesting dispatch from one of Manchester's twin cities that takes in some really interesting political themes. Wow. 
Wow, fantastic. Okay, manchestermill.co.uk to subscribe to The Mill to get access to all of that. Also, every week on the podcast, we'll point you in the direction of something that you have to do, see or visit in the city. Yoshi, what's going on? This weekend, uh, my friends and I will be packing into the city, which you've already heard about from Jack earlier on um, Oldham Street. We're watching the Manchester Derby in there. They have Sky as an enormous banner on the outside of the pub proclaims to the world. Um, so, yeah, we'll be in one of the Northern Quarter's oldest boozers. It is a big, big sporting weekend in Manchester, Definitely. isn't it? Definitely. City United. I look forward to that. Danny, what's on your radar? So this Sunday, Home is showing a film called Shalom Taiwan, and it's part of the UK Jewish Film Festival. I'm looking forward to this one because it's about a rabbi from Buenos Aires who travels to Taiwan, and apparently he undertakes a journey that not only saves his community, but also his marriage. Oh, wow. Brilliant. That sounds really great. And Home, always worth a visit as well, right? Uh, Also this week, I visited RHS Bridgewater, which is the massive gardens in Salford. Went there for the first time, was blown away. It's incredible. It's absolutely enormous. It's huge. From the 17th of November, they're doing evening openings for what they call Glow, where they will uh, light up the gardens in what they describe as a spectacular display. I've got to say, it looks brilliant. It looks like it's going to be really something very, very special. And I'll point you in the direction of that now because you have to book slots and tickets that are worth snapping up while you can. Just search RHS Bridgewater for their website. That's it from us for now. Yoshi, Danny, Jack, thank you for being with us this week. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the Manchester Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. It'll help other people find us and we can continue making more of these. And plenty more where this came from in the Mill newsletter. News, events, deep dives into fascinating stories and entertaining people direct into your inbox. Just subscribe manchestermill.co.uk. 